1: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org/slash events.
2: I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita, and from WBEZ in Chicago, this is Nerdat. Coming up,
3: the economy. The global economy would be shaken. The U.S. would create new industries. We would clean up the air. And these scientists would run out the door to the bench, jazzed about how they were going to change the world.
1: Author Steve Levine tells us about the ragtag bunch of scientists who are racing to invent a super battery that will change the world. And then we get to know the woman who started the Girl Scouts. Oh gee,
2: Girl Scout. That and your nerd confessions on Nerdette. Because everybody's a little nerdy about
1: something.
4: Make it snappy, nerd! Nerds! Nerds!
2: I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And you're listening to Nerdette.
1: Steve Levine writes about energy and energy markets for Quartz, this national publication. And it was just after the economic crash in 2008 that he decided he wanted to dive into a world that he was hearing a lot about, the race for the super battery. His new book
2: is called The Powerhouse, Inside the Invention of a Battery to Save the World.
3: I noticed that a lot of countries, 20 countries I counted, started to look at a super battery and electric cars as potential pieces of a real economy, something that would not be a bubble. And that appealed to me. So I started talking about batteries. And I have to say that nobody agreed with me.
1: Some key players emerge; They become the central characters in your book. Tell us about who those folks are.
3: So there's a book that was published in 1980 called The Soul of the New Machine. And this won the Pulitzer Prize. It's by Tracy Kidder. It's a terrific little book. And what it did in 1980 is it brought to an ordinary person what is it like to be an inventor of a desktop computer and spent a year with one team. I wanted to do that with batteries. I ended up at Argonne National Lab right here in Chicago. I was absolutely baffled that the battery team there had not been discovered. They're terrific characters. And there is in his book, Tracy Kidder's book, there's a guy named West. He is the guy who's running the team. The West character in the powerhouse is a guy named Chamberlain, Jeff Chamberlain. And he is this very interesting, all-American style manager who has a a science background. He grew up, you know, know, typical, right? Paper root at the age of 10, (laughs) class president, in high school, played the trumpet in the school band, full scholarship to Wake Forest, and so on and so on, and an evangelist, a technological evangelist, and stood in front weekly, his team, and fired them up with these speeches about how they were going to change the world, about how the economy, the global economy, would be shaken. The U.S. would create new industries. We would clean up the air Climate change would become less of a menace, and he would be finished, and these scientists would run out the door to the bench, jazzed about how they were going to change the world. And this team includes a South African, a Moroccan, a lot of Chinese, South Koreans. What I understood very quickly is that America's team in the battery race were almost all foreign-born, and that was a nice little wrinkle that I really— enjoyed. And another character that I wanted to mention, Jason Croy, who had spent 10 years on the road as the lead singer in a hard rock band, in a, in a <laughs> heavy metal band, and then decided he wanted to be a physicist. Went back to college, and he is at the forefront in this story because a battery material that was invented at Argonne by the South African, Mike Thackeray, is in the Chevy Volt. And that's the basis of the super battery. But there's a flaw in this material, and Jason Croy, the physicist, the rock singer, is at the forefront of trying to fix it.
1: This group sounds like so much fun. It reminds me of anytime there's a film that we love that has sort of that Ocean's Eleven almost cast of, you all have to have a unique expertise in something so that when we come together, we can pull off this big job. And in this case, it's not a casino robbery. It's uh, billion dollar industry that they might be spawning with their work, but argon's federally funded. does that give them more space and freedom to find these scientific answers? Does it feel like a isolated instance in the federal government, which we think of as being technologically not nimble? is argon different?
3: It is not different. The battery department discovers recognizes halfway in my period there i was I was there for two years that they're doing everything wrong and and that the motivation, the factors that motivate the scientists to do what they do are wrong. The incentives are to publish a new paper and to get a new patent and as many papers as you can and to produce individual components like one electrode, the other electrode, the electrolyte rather than a working battery and to, to then once you invent it, move on to the next thing well, I already invented that. I <laughs> guess I can, uh, I, can, I can figure out what I'm doing next. Well, no. Keep iterating. Right, yeah. No, no, yes, yeah. You need to now get that into a product. And so having made that recognition, and, all, and by the way, this recognition is made all the way up the line to the Department of Energy. Stephen Chu at that time was the Secretary of Energy. He comes from Bell Labs. There's a whole strain of Bell Labs in the book. There are a lot of former managers from Bell in the Department of Energy and at Argonne, they want to recreate Bell Labs and with that invention machine system, invent the better battery. And that means changing the incentives. It means creating the discipline, the quarterly discipline that you get if you have closer contact with manufacturers. They absolutely needed that, and they know it. They need someone looking over their shoulder and say, well, can you do that faster? Can you do it in a way that results in this kind of a product for us?
1: The team sounds like they're very diverse, but at their core, they must all be tinkerers at heart. Did you discover that there are any telltale signs in the origin stories of them becoming these brilliant physicists, scientists, engineers?
3: They almost all talked about their fathers. This is a strong thread running through everybody's story was a, a close relationship with their father a lot of times their fathers themselves had technical backgrounds they were tinkerers as boys one woman is on the team too there should be more women incidentally for those who are listening please become battery guys because <laughs> they need more of those but the other thing is a lot of them just i have no idea why came from around the same area in Michigan. The Americans who were on this team, two of them, they're like 20 years apart in age. They went to the same elementary school and they went to the same graduate school, Georgia Tech.
1: I'm from Michigan. So in my mind, it is a part of the culture there that you tinker with a car in the garage, that there's someone in your family who's worked on the nuts and bolts, literally, of a vehicle. So you have an uncle who worked for GM, or you have a relative who worked in some other sort of manufacturing in Michigan, and it meant that everyone's garage had interesting, odd things happening in it all the time. Whereas maybe uh, in Connecticut in the 70s, That was people scratching out the idea for the internet on the back of a napkin. And in Silicon Valley, we have the garage ethos of Apple and others. In Michigan, yeah, we've been tinkering with cars and car batteries and
3: carburetors for a long time. That's right. And looping back to your question about being connected with companies, where is it best for this kind of research to take place? The world, the United States, did not give the signal. The battery was invented in 1799. 1799, <laughs> the lead-acid battery that's still in your car was invented in 1859. Wow. The lithium-ion battery, 1980, 30 years ago. So these have a long history. And so you might ask, what's the problem? Why hasn't there been a, you know, a big breakthrough as yet, one that brings on the whole electric age? We didn't give the signal to the battery guys until three, four years ago, at most, Five years ago, 2009, and I don't mean just in the United States. I mean around the world, including China, that we needed a super battery. And that's when these tinkerers started to look at what they were doing. But then it took a couple more years to discover everything's wrong. (laughs) This is not the right pathway. (laughs) Think about that. That's a courageous thing to do, to publicly state, to state to yourself, Mm -hmm. I'm doing everything wrong. And not only I am, everybody is. And at Argonne, they start over. That's what this Bell Lablet is all about, is starting over. So the idea is you take really smart people, you put them all in one place, and you infuse them with a stretch target. And the stretch target is not specific. You have to invent a whole new field. <laughs> no, seriously. Yeah. They yeah. are told it's not good enough for you to sit there and make an incremental advance. If you want to impress me, You need to do something that no one has ever done, and if you win a Nobel Prize, that would help too. (laughs) It forces them to mix because no one thinks of something in a vacuum out of the blue. Everyone, including Einstein, incidentally, is standing on someone else's shoulders. Sure, yeah. So they talk, they cross-fertilize, there's more, the transistor was not one man, it was three. So stretch goals, incredible pressure, and then the commercial aspect. So the idea that, okay, yes, we're doing a lot of basic science, but everybody knows that in the end, they want to be able to throw that invention over the wall, over to the commercial side. And the commercial guys are kind of there saying, you know, asking (laughs) questions. And yeah, so that's it.
1: In your mind, how much of it also has to do with breaking down the walls between the way science is structured academically? So the top thinkers in a lot of these fields we're talking about are in very narrow paths and work with other engineers, other physicists, other chemists. And to build a battery even, a very simple thing, you need a little bit of expertise in all of those ways. Does throwing together these teams mean breaking down that idea that science can even be structured that way?
3: Yes. Short answer is yes. They understand that the answer is going to come from outside the box. Now, just as an example... For how I understood what they were talking about, I did some work recently on Pangaea, the supercontinent from 200 million years ago. The theory of Pangaea was conceived of not by a geologist. It was a climatologist in 1912. And not until the 70s was it accepted. It was rejected out of hand. Who was this climatologist? <laughs> what kind of a harebrained idea of this? A supercontinent? No. I mean, you know there was always south and north. America and Europe, and so on, and so with the same thing with batteries, they understand they need material scientists, they have physicists, chemists, and so on. Someone is going to come up with an idea from outside the box, so they're looking for that
1: and they're tinkering over at Argonne, and we're seeing people hedging the bet that they'll succeed or not in the private sector. You know, maybe some car companies are hoping that someone else is going to take this problem off their plates. We see Elon Musk and Tesla doubling down on the old battery and just making a lot of them. But what do you think is going to be the breaking point?
3: There's no way of knowing who makes the breakthrough. Chinese labs are trying to do it. Japanese, South Korean, Israeli, French, all over the place. Right? This quest is going on. Obviously, Argonne would love to do it there and other labs in, in the United States. It's not Argonne isn't the only team in the United States doing this, but it's an excellent window. In fact, it doesn't matter where this book was written. The point is to sit down with one team that's attempting to make the big breakthrough and to understand what makes a battery guy tick? What are the stakes? And so on. They do believe that they're going to do it. The manner in which the system is set up right now, I think is propitious for making that outcome. And that's that GM and Tesla both have informed the edifice, the battery edifice, I want a 200-mile car. I want a car that goes 200 miles on a single charge that costs $35,000. When you send out that information, then you're telling the battery scientists, the battery guys, exactly what you want. And for GM, that's already happened. GM unveiled at the Detroit Auto Show the Bolt, B-O-L-T, 200-mile car. GM says it's going to sell for... $35,000. That's a very good price. That's a price at which a lot of people will look seriously at it. Elon Musk says he's going to produce a 200-mile car, $35,000 as well in 2018. It being Elon Musk, it's going to be stylized and designed in a very cool way so that the key point here is that when someone wants to buy a low-end luxury car, they will look at the three series BMW, which today costs thirty-three thousand dollars. Maybe by then it'll be thirty-five, thirty-six. You can decide right there on the spot. Do I want Elon Musk's electric model three for thirty-five thousand? Or do I want a combustion car, the three series BMW? That's an inflection point. From that point on, that begins the electric age. I think we're going to see cascading breakthroughs after that.
1: It'll be fun to watch, and as someone who doesn't have a car right now, maybe in a few years I'll get to make that choice. Right now I'm just going to stick to the CTA. Gets me where I need to go. Steve Levine is the author of the new book, The Powerhouse, Inside the Invention of a Battery to Save the World. Thanks so much for joining us on Nerdette.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Still to come, we meet the musical mind
2: behind our beloved Comedy Central show, Broad City, get to know the OG Girl Scout, and hear your nerd confessions. This is Nerdette.
4: Started from the bottom, now we're here.
1: listening to Nerdette, I'm Trisha Bobita.
2: And I'm Greta Johnson. I feel like we need to start this segment by saying that if you haven't seen Broad City yet, you need to just go do that right now.
1: Right this very minute. It's in its second season on Comedy Central. Last year it was a breakout hit. Before that, it was sort of a cult status comedy series
4: on YouTube.
1: And we recently talked with Nick Koenig. He's also known as Hot Sugar, and his beats are
2: behind what just may be the best television show ever.
4: They wanted a boom-bap rap thing, but They didn't want it to be too retro. They didn't want it to be a 90s thing. They wanted it to be like a 2000, whatever year it is this year. I don't even remember.
2: Dude makes music, so he must be an audio nerd. He probably has a lot in common with us podcast producers. But when he walks around with a microphone, he's looking for something very different.
4: I would never record a conversation because it's not even that interesting. Uh, Except for this one, for our purposes.
2: (laughs) Obviously, he backtracked a little bit once he realized he was talking to people whose <laughs> livelihoods actually rely on the human voice, but it is fair to say that his aversion comes from a philosophical place.
4: Musically, I'm I'm not as interested in the human voice. I guess I'm bitter towards the human voice because in the music industry, everything is so centered around the voice. It's the most relatable instrument. Everything has a voice is is the way I see it, so I'd rather record voices we haven't heard. There was a time, actually, we... We we taped, it's going to sound bad, it's going to sound like we taped the mic to a dog, but we just attached it to a a dog's collar, and then the dog was gone for so long. And I listened to that recording. It was like almost a day's worth of what a dog heard. And uh, through my speakers, it was crazy and surround sound. It was like, that dog was going on some adventures, but I had no idea what they were doing. I wanted to challenge myself, and I wanted to sample instances of of boredom, classic representations of boredom. So I took these very, I guess, like, American gendered ideas, like a guy crushing a can on his head or someone blowing bubble gum. You know, I was thinking, like, twirling your hair and stuff like that. And I just asked my fans to send me webcam videos of themselves doing that. And people did. Now, those two actions don't necessarily produce recognizable sounds or coveted sounds at all uh, and especially when it's coming from a webcam video i was stuck using these like webcam recordings that were super lo-fi and super terrible and i had to yeah i spent like two years trying to make turn them all into instruments that were a bit more accessible <laughs> When I get an idea like that stuck in my head, I won't be a happy person until I do it. So it's really frustrating. It's, I don't want to call it OCD, but its it was like a, a physical need. Like, my life sucks until I achieve one of these idiotic tasks that I've set out to, to record. Associated music attempts to disguise these non-instrumental sounds, whether they're found sounds, field recordings, or things I, I record. And we try to manipulate the recording into sounding like a more traditional or accessible instrument. And then, uh, using any number of softwares, we just treat it like it's, it's either a drum by throwing it in a drum machine, or a, a synth by throwing it into a sampler, keyboard, and stuff like that. So if you think you're listening to an organ, It could be a a parakeet squealing. Or if you're getting attached to a certain kick drum in a song, it could be a, a couch falling off the roof of a building in the Lower East Side. And I think that just gives it each song or each sound its own unique character, I guess. It's the only, it's a sense of control to be honest, because we don't have any control in our lives as much as we want to think we do. Um, But it's kind of, it's a way to trick myself into thinking that I do have a sense of control. It's like I'm playing God. I can record sounds of boredom and turn them into an epic symphony. And it doesn't feel boring anymore. It feels like a celebration rather than a waste of life and uh so that's why I record all these sounds I I take things that we do take for granted and, and try to you know I don't know try to polish them into more beautiful um pieces I guess
2: Koenig, also known as Hot Sugar, his new album is called God's Hand.
1: You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Trisha Bobita.
2: And I'm Greta Johnson.
1: It's time now for Great Lady Nerds of History. This week marks the founding of the Girl Scouts. More than 100 years ago, by Juliet Gordon Lowe. Here's President Barack Obama telling the origin story of the organization as he awarded Juliet Gordon Lowe with the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012.
5: Growing up in Georgia in the late 1800s, Juliet Gordon Lowe was not exactly typical. Uh, she flew airplanes, she went swimming, she experimented with electricity for fun. And she recognized early on that in order to keep up with the changing times, women would have to be prepared. So at age 52, after meeting the founder of the Boy Scouts in England, uh, Juliet came home and called her cousin and said, I've got something for the girls of Savannah and all of America and all the world, and we're going to start it tonight. A century later, almost 60 million Girl Scouts have gained leadership skills and self-confidence through the organization that she founded. They include CEOs, astronauts, my own secretary of state. Uh, And from the very beginning, uh, they have also included girls of different races and faiths and abilities just the way that Juliet would have wanted it.
1: That's the president referencing his secretary of state, Hillary Rodham Clinton, as one of the countless nerdettes who include Girl Scouts as an important part of their origin story. You can learn more about Juliet Gordon-Lowe on our website. We have a bit of a bibliography there for you, as well as information about all the great lady nerds of history we've been talking about. But now it's time for homework.
2: We want you to read The Powerhouse, Inside the Invention of a Battery to Save the World by Steve Levine.
1: They're totally going to make a movie out of these guys, so you should read the book now so you can be one of those people who says, oh, I read the book when the movie comes out. Oh, like me. Oh, yeah, Except like Except that I
2: don't see the movie. <laughs> Steve also has a bonus homework assignment for you. I
3: think that it would be very inspirational to look into the life of John Goodenough, 92-year-old professor at the University of Texas at Austin. He's the inventor of almost every major commercial lithium-ion chemistry on the planet. He's a very special scientist, a genius, who he is a great inventor himself but he's insight into what it takes to inspire great invention because he repeatedly has had other inventors, young inventors, postdocs, sit in his lab and make enormous breakthroughs under him. I wrote a long feature about him that's online but other people have written about John Goodenough too. I really suggest that the listeners of Nerdette. Look into John Goodenough.
2: We'll have a link to that and all of your homework at com. Now it's time to hear from you. Time for Nerd Confessions.
6: Hi, my name is Elliot Reynolds. I am a journalist, and I guess this is my Nerdette confession. I listen to the Nerdette podcast and I write letters back home to friends and family. And sometimes they're friends that I haven't talked to in years, sometimes they're friends that have been going through stuff, but I find that it's Really not to just sort of stop uh, turn off facebook turn off a lot of things i find that when i write a letter to a friend they tell me that it literally brightened their day their week their month and sometimes like their year nobody gets a letter in the mail anymore it's something very personal and i'm finding now that just writing a letter not only tells somebody that you took the time out to think about them it also means that you're putting a personal part of yourself that's not public it's not shared. It's nice is it's a one-to-one. You can hold it in your hand. It's physical. It's not something that's going on a screen. And what it means is that somebody takes the time out of their day to make sure that you're doing all right with your day. Anywho, that's my nerd confession. Cheers.
2: I feel like this nerd confession is almost extra homework, don't you,
1: Tricia? It's beautiful. Elliot's mm. completely right. It's very special to get something in the mail from a friend it is special i have to say i like to write a lot of postcards and there
2: is a sort of public feeling about that like i almost love the challenge of making them as creepy and weird as possible because (laughs) i know that there are people who will be reading it between me and the receiver just because it's writing on a piece of paper that's exposed (laughs) so that's my challenge to you write someone a creepy postcard (laughs)
1: Write someone a creepy postcard or a lovely note, as Elliot would. Either way, I think it's good homework. This confession became homework. Synergy. Call and leave your nerd confession. A voicemail is pretty personal, still, on the scale of personal to impersonal communication. It's no handwritten note, but we love hearing from you. And since it's a podcast, we got to hear your voice. So call us, 312-600-5638, and tell us about when you were at your nerdiest. Everything from epic fails to humble brags. Welcome. You can also
2: call to leave a suggestion for a great lady nerd of history. 312-600-5638.
1: Thanks to Steve Levine and Nick Koenig, a.k.a. Hot Sugar, for joining us this week. You can find us at nerdatpodcast.com. That's also where you can sign up for our email newsletter. Talk
2: with us on Twitter at nerdatpodcast and like us on Facebook.
1: Follow us at nerdatpodcast on Instagram for teeny tiny book reviews. Any mini book reviews. This show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita, and Greta Johnson. With help from
2: Joe Disseau, Colleen Pellisier, and Brad Helm.
1: Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect nerds like you. More information available at chicagopublicmedia.org.
2: Thank you for listening on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Throw some stars
1: and write a review on iTunes if you're feeling generous. Like the excellent RA1029 did on iTunes. Are those initials, or is this person an RA in a college yep. dorm and that's the yep. room Yep, room yep. That
2: was my exact thought, Trisha! Synergy! (laughs) We appreciate the stars, the retweets, and the shares.
1: There's one other way you can help Nerdette. If you're a nerd who owns a business or you work for one that wants to get their message heard by Nerdette listeners, you can underwrite this show. Email us, nerdetpodcast at gmail.com to learn more about sponsorship opportunities.
2: Our theme music is New Old Toys by Poddington Bear.
1: Do your homework. Do your homework.
0: Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO.